Elizabeth Packard has just come out of the fight of her life. She'd spent three years locked in an asylum that she had no power to get out of. Her spiteful husband had committed her and used every legal tool at his disposal to silence her powerful voice. And now he had taken her children from her. After years of fighting, no one could blame Elizabeth if she decided to just lay down and surrender. But that just wasn't in Elizabeth's nature. When she'd been locked up in the asylum, she never stopped insisting on her sanity. When she was transferred to a ward that was teeming with violence, she not only withstood it, but persistently made the living conditions better for everyone around her. And when her beloved pen and paper were taken from her, she found a way to put her thoughts down and then to conceal them from anyone who might come looking. Elizabeth Packard was a fighter, and there was no way she was going to lay down for this fight for her children and for the rights of married women across the United States. I'm Kristen, and this is Broadly Underestimated, the podcast dedicated to understanding the underestimated aspects of our lives. Every object, institution, historical event, even the most mundane, has its own revolutionary story. And it's often the underestimated women behind those stories that have shaped life as we know it today. In the previous episode in this series, we left Elizabeth just after the trial where she was finally ruled as sane by a court in Illinois. This victory marked a turning point for Elizabeth. Up to her admittance to the Jacksonville Asylum in 1860, her life had been marked by a sincere desire to be a good wife and mother, and she generally excelled at all the things she put her focus on. She was a wonderful homemaker, an upstanding member of her community and her church, and she had many friends and supporters. But the end of this trial marked a completely new stage in her life. When she was trapped in the asylum and then living in limbo afterward, she just wanted to get back to her children and her home. But her being ruled as sane, and then her husband's decision to take her children to a state where that ruling was invalid, set forth a new era in her life that was dedicated to independence. Her own independence and the independence of the women around her. Because if she could be committed to an asylum by a spiteful husband, so could any other woman. And if she could lose her children because she had no legal rights to them in the first place, then any other woman would be vulnerable to this injustice as well. Now, as we saw in the story of Elizabeth's marriage and, quote, treatment at the asylum, her life thus far had been overseen by male stewards. First, her father, and then her husband, then her doctor. Legally, she didn't have control over her own money, the right to vote, or the rights to her children. In fact, single women had more determination over their own lives than married women did. Because the moment she signed that marriage license, a woman was absorbed legally by her husband. She suddenly became a non-entity in the eyes of the law, and Elizabeth was determined to change that. But first, she had to build a life of her own. For the first time in her life, she needed to support herself financially, and in order to both get back and care for her children, she needed both legal and financial independence. And so, she got to work. But let's take a second to flesh out what exactly Elizabeth was aiming for and why it was such a big deal. In the previous episode about Elizabeth, I mentioned briefly the concept of coverture, but it's at this stage in her story when Elizabeth really begins to push back against it in a systematic way. So coverture was a legal principle that dated back to the Middle Ages. It was enacted in places like France and England and eventually in the American colonies. 
What it meant was that a woman became absorbed into her husband's legal identity. So legally, she didn't exist as an individual. She didn't have rights to her earnings. She couldn't own property and she couldn't make a will. So side note, this is why all of these brotherless women in Jane Austen novels have to rush to find a husband in order to save their family money. Now, as we saw with Elizabeth, since women didn't have legal identities, they also didn't have control over their families or their own bodies. So legally, husbands could take children away from their wives or send them away for training or education without even consulting their wives. And again, legally, husbands could make medical decisions about their wives without their input. Now, an insidious thing about coverture is that even though the legal principle formerly ended a long time ago, certain aspects of it lingered up until the 1960s and 70s, and there are still vestiges of it working today. So let me explain. Until the 1960s and 70s, a few of the things that women in the United States couldn't legally do were to get a credit card in her own name, to serve on a jury, to go to an Ivy League school, get health insurance at the same monetary rate as a man, take legal action against workplace sexual harassment, refuse to have sex with her husband, or to take a birth control pill. Now, these are just a few of the things that women didn't have legal rights to until shockingly recently. But the issue is that this idea of women being absorbed into a pair has permeated our culture so deeply that it still persists in the game of catch-up that women have been playing for decades and centuries for equal participation in civil, professional, and political spaces. And we can even see holdovers from coverture in things like women changing their names when they get married as they become legally absorbed into their husband's family name. So we can see the vestiges of coverture still exist today, and they shouldn't. But we can definitely say that what we are dealing with now in the United States is so far from the level of control that Elizabeth Packard and the women around her experienced. So we've come a long way. But Elizabeth was a key piece in that puzzle because as she started building her own life and career, she also started chipping away at coverture. So not long after she was committed to the asylum, Elizabeth realized that her writing would be the thing to set her free. Her written Bible class essays had been a key piece of evidence in her sanity trial, and now her writing would spread the word about her story and her cause, and it was going to make her some money. Because Elizabeth had written voraciously during her confinement in the asylum. She'd written an epic account of her time there, the abuses she'd experienced and witnessed, and the injustice of a system that would commit women to an asylum in order to police their social behaviors. And so Elizabeth started working to publish a pamphlet first that contained that rebuke of Dr. McFarland that she'd written, which had resulted in her being transferred to the miserable Eighth Ward. She sold her pamphlets for 25 cents each, which would cost about $4 today. But she didn't stop there. She was determined to publish that enormous account of her experience that she'd written. But publication would be expensive, and Elizabeth didn't have the money to front the cost. So she took out an advertisement in the newspaper requesting donations, and she began going door to door and appearing in public spaces to garner support for her project. Now, remember that women generally didn't appear in public without a male escort, so Elizabeth was really pushing some boundaries here. And in truth, it was kind of risky behavior for her to be out there on the town speaking with men and women on her own. But it didn't stop her. And being the eloquent and persuasive Elizabeth that we love, she gained supporters everywhere. Now, there were concerns that whatever money Elizabeth did earn from her writing could be taken by her husband. Because, as we discussed, under coverture, Theophilus could legally stop publication and or steal her earnings. But luckily, this didn't happen. And finally, by May of 1864, Elizabeth raised enough money to publish her book. 
The book was a hit, and copies were flying off the shelves, and Elizabeth was now financially independent. And in March of 1866, she published a follow-up volume to her book called Marital Power Exemplified, which focused on married women's rights. With this book, Elizabeth hoped to illustrate to readers just how easily a woman's liberty and dignity could be taken from her, and to get their support for a change in legislation. This book was also a success, and with it, Elizabeth launched her campaign for legislative change. Now, keep in mind that by taking the children to Massachusetts, Theophilus had accomplished two things. One, he had taken them to a place where Elizabeth's shiny new sanity ruling was invalid. And two, he'd utilized his legal right to his children, because again, women didn't have any legal rights to their own children. Now, you might be wondering why Elizabeth didn't just divorce her husband and be done with it. And truthfully, she did try. After her trial, she filed for divorce, but ultimately, Theophilus never showed up at the divorce hearing, and so she dropped it. And Elizabeth knew that apart from gaining financial independence, the only way to get her children back would be to actually change the legislation surrounding female sanity and gender equality, especially within marriages. So she dedicated herself to two things reforming the laws and regulations surrounding the commitment of patients to asylums, and the legal equality and representation of married women. So going back to Elizabeth's brilliant talents for communication, the girl knew how to network, and she campaigned with politicians and voters relentlessly, trying to push through various pieces of legislation that would protect women both inside and outside of asylums. Now, in 1865, there was a new law in the books that required anyone, including married women, to have a trial before being committed to an asylum. But the problem was that the law didn't have any teeth because there weren't any penalties for noncompliance. So Elizabeth got to work with her allies to propose a new personal liberty bill that required that any person accused of insanity be given a trial before commitment. And they added a penalty fine of $500 to $1,000 or imprisonment for three months to a year for not complying. So this new bill had fangs, and Elizabeth rallied hard for it to be passed. And she was very conscious of the fact that as she worked toward these changes, so many of the friends she'd made in the asylum were still stuck there. Now, all while Elizabeth was campaigning for this personal liberty bill to be passed, Dr. McFarland was publicly fighting against it, and he would tell anyone he could that Elizabeth was certifiably insane. So they fought things out in the press, and also Elizabeth kicked into high gear, speaking to groups in public boarding houses and often giving away her pamphlets for free just to spread the word. And finally, after two years of campaigning, Elizabeth was given the opportunity to speak in front of the General Assembly. As I mentioned in the previous episode, it wasn't common for women to speak publicly, especially in government. But of course, when Elizabeth got up to speak, she was not only captivating, but forceful. She said, Now, if the doctor is required to prove his patients insane from their own conduct, there would be a shadow of justice attached to his individual judgment. But while this law allows him to call them insane and treat them as insane without evidence of insanity, where is the justice of such a decision? You do not hang a person without proof of the accused's own actions that he is guilty of the charge which forfeits his life. So the personal liberty of married women should not be sacrificed without proof that they are insane from their own conduct. To my certain knowledge, there were married women there when I left, more than three years since, who were not insane then at all, and they are still retained there as hopelessly insane patients on the simple strength of the above ground of evidence. 
and it is my womanly sympathy for this class of prisoners that has moved me to come alone, to see if I could not possibly induce this legislature to compassionate their cause. For it is under your laws, gentlemen, I have suffered, and they are still suffering, and it is to this legislature of 1867 that we apply for a legal remedy. She then read an extract from a letter Dr. McFarlane had written to the Chicago Tribune in 1864, where he attested to the justification in committing Elizabeth, as well as the majority of the patients at the asylum. Elizabeth presented this statement as evidence that, like Elizabeth, other patients had been admitted to the asylum unjustly. In her statement, Elizabeth hinted at the horrible living conditions at the asylum, and it must have piqued the men's interest because within hours of Elizabeth closing her speech by calling on the legislators to protect the personal liberty of women imprisoned in the asylum, she received word that the legislators would perform an unscheduled visit of the asylum the very next morning. Now, the politicians hit the ground running in Jacksonville the next morning. They spoke with several of Elizabeth's friends at the asylum and concluded that Elizabeth had been right. Women with no legitimate reason to be there were languishing in the asylum for years on end. And as a result of this visit, a committee was appointed to perform a formal investigation of Dr. McFarland and the asylum. Finally, this insidious system would be exposed. Now, the very next day after the committee was appointed to investigate the asylum, Elizabeth's personal liberty bill was up for a vote on the Senate floor. Elizabeth would have waited nervously in the gallery since women weren't allowed on the Senate floor for votes. I can only imagine both the thrill and terror she must have felt. Surely, given the Senate's reaction to her testimony and their visit to the asylum, she must have felt optimistic about this vote. But when it had to do with sticking up for women's rights, she'd had enough bitterly disappointing experiences to make her cautious. So the discussion that followed must have been nerve-wracking for Elizabeth. The politicians argued, pushing and pulling against each other's points, but in the end, every single senator voted in favor of the bill. Finally, women wouldn't be committed to an asylum without a trial, and women who had already been imprisoned in asylums would get their chance to defend themselves. This battle, years in the making, had been won. So with this new legislation in place, Elizabeth eagerly awaited a flood of releases from the asylum. The trials that the new law required for anyone accused of insanity would apply retroactively to patients who had already been committed. So Elizabeth knew that so many of the women there would actually never meet any kind of standard of insanity. But to Elizabeth's shock and disappointment, the trials were held, but this flood of releases never came. And there wasn't a clear explanation as to why. Elizabeth knew that there were plenty of women who should be released from the asylum, enough to make a public impact. So the absence of this was baffling. Now, not long after, the investigation led by a senator named Alan C. Fuller began. Fuller and a committee of other senators conducted impromptu inspections of the Jacksonville Asylum. They spoke to patients and the administration, and they examined asylum paperwork and reports. And there were hearings involving the testimonies of current and former patients. Now, to avoid any potential for intimidating the patients, Dr. McFarlane was actually not allowed to attend the hearings. And the committee heard the horrifying testimonies about beatings, chokings, near drownings, negligent doctors and staff, and the silencing of claims of sanity. And after all was said and done, it painted a hideous and miserable picture. So consequently, and expectedly, the committee's report was a damning one. First, the committee reprimanded the hospital trustees and administration for their abusive behavior toward patients, and they found an outrageous number of patients who had been admitted without the appropriate paperwork. 
And the investigation exposed the fact that the day before those retroactive trials for asylum patients were supposed to take place, the asylum quietly released over 100 patients. This, of course, reeked of culpability. So the committee recommended that Dr. McFarland be discharged immediately. Now, the tricky thing about this process was that though Fuller and his committee had the power to access the asylum and its records, to speak with patients, and to propose alterations, it didn't actually have the power to implement any changes. So once Fuller read the report to the trustees, he had to leave them to discuss and debate their next actions. Now, as Elizabeth found out after she'd been released from the asylum, the trustees were far from a neutral decision-making body. They were in full support of McFarland, and they were enraged by Fuller's report. And instead of taking Fuller's recommendations, they actually wrote to the governor in an attempt to block the report from being made public. And since the governor was actually a friend of McFarland's, he agreed to simply receive the report and then sit on it until the next meeting of the General Assembly, which was more than a year away. This, of course, would give McFarland and the asylum time to get ahead of the news and to vindicate themselves before the public even knew about their wrongdoings. And so Fuller did the only thing a person with a conscience could do under the circumstances. He leaked the report to the press. Now, as you can imagine, that level of undeniable malpractice would have shocked the public, and they were outraged. The press story permeated public conversation, and Elizabeth Packard became a household name. But predictably, McFarland didn't take this lying down. He waged an all-out war against Elizabeth and the press. He belittled her and smeared her reputation. But at the end of the day, public opinion raged so fiercely against McFarland that nothing could put Pandora back in its box. When the next legislative meeting came around in 1869 and the investigation was finally reviewed, they agreed that McFarland had no business working in the Jacksonville Asylum. And McFarland walked away in shame. Finally, Elizabeth could breathe a sigh of relief. After all this time and so many hurdles, Elizabeth's hard work, persistence, and sheer will had paid off. She had won her freedom. She had gained financial independence. She had made life more equal for married women in Illinois, and she had freed so many of her sisters from the asylum. Eventually, all of Elizabeth's children returned to her. She continued to raise them as she had done before being committed to the asylum, but by this time, it was different. She was a published author. She was financially independent, and she was a respected champion of human rights. Over her lifetime, Elizabeth published many pieces of writing and created a wave of change in public opinion. She was involved in so many pieces of legislation that we just don't have time to talk about all of them here in this podcast, but her wins included things like securing postal rights for all patients in asylums so they could communicate with their friends and families, and securing married women's rights to their own earnings. She was completely dedicated to the legal representation and protection of married women and those plagued by abuses within asylums. Through the power of her own story, her door-to-door campaigning, her books, her pamphlets, her voice in newspaper articles, her meetings with politicians and people of influence, her ties to the community, and her speeches to small and large groups, she had won support for causes that had previously gone completely unnoticed. And she would spend her life protecting the vulnerable. At the beginning of this series, I said that I wanted to talk about a woman who used the power of her words to fight against the weaponization of women's mental health. And Elizabeth Packard not only exposed the way that women's individuality could be turned against them in a medical sense, but she also exposed how women's independence was smothered by the institution of marriage. 
Now, Elizabeth's actions left a lasting impact that prevented countless women from being institutionalized unjustly and also from losing autonomy within their marriages. But unfortunately, while far-reaching, this legacy was not all-encompassing. Throughout the United States, women continued to quietly disappear into asylums. For decades, the practice of discarding difficult women ensured that overcrowded asylums would be filled to the brink. Until another woman came along who purposefully got herself committed to an asylum and then blew that asylum wide open. Stay tuned for the next episode in this series where I'll talk about the astounding experience of Nellie Bly, investigative journalist, women's rights advocate, and rebel. And now it's time for a segment I call The Stacks. Doing research is one of my favorite things to do. The more you learn, the more the puzzle pieces of the world start to come together. So I want to take you into the stacks of the library with me to share favorites of the books, documentaries, movies, interviews that I think you would enjoy if you want to learn more about this topic. As I mentioned in the previous episode, The Woman They Could Not Silence by Kate Moore is a fantastic narrative of Elizabeth Packard's life. Beyond the fascinating details of Elizabeth's story, Kate Moore provides really wonderful historical context and gives the reader a solid idea of the ripple effect of Elizabeth's experiences and impact. There's just so much that happened during Elizabeth's early life, her time at the asylum, her trial, and her years of political activism that there just isn't enough time to include it all in the podcast. But all the details make Elizabeth's life even more impressive, and I can't recommend Kate Moore's book enough to fill in the rest of the story. Now, as we know, Elizabeth Packard was a powerful writer, and she published a lot of her work, often with incredibly long titles. But a couple of her main works I'd like to mention are The Great Drama, which is the two-volume account of her time in the asylum, and Marital Power Exemplified, which is Elizabeth's account of her experience at trial. Whenever I read Elizabeth's words, her conviction jumps off the page, and it's so inspiring to hear her powerful voice almost two centuries later. Thanks so much for listening. Please be sure to rate and review the podcast and connect with me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Woman in Time. And we'll see you next time on Broadly Underestimated.